Uh, it's a great privilege to be here. And as uh, a few of you whose faces I recognize greeted me this morning, and you, usually, you greeted me with, how are you? And my response, if I didn't say it out loud inside, at least was, well, I'll be better once this is over. <laughs> um, <coughs> uh, because uh, standing up here is, is not scary to me at all. I know I'm weird. Public speaking is not difficult for me. But I have struggled with what in the world I might say that would be worth your giving up a morning to hear. A huge percentage of you don't know me at all. But I had years of speaking at women's conferences and retreats. And then as Life Path grew and my children's needs grew, I realized I needed to prioritize my time schedule. And the truth is, I wanted to be a change agent. I didn't want to be queen for the weekend, which is what you are when you're the speaker at a retreat for the weekend. I wanted to know my audience, and I wanted them to know me. I wanted them to know the real person that I was, warts and all. And that doesn't happen when you're the speaker. So I quit speaking to audiences I didn't know well, and I left that as another day. But here I am again. And yes, I agonized over what to say this one time, just one time, I get one shot at you, that's it. What am I gonna say that's gonna offend here? What should I say here? Oh no, what do I do with this? The truth is, over time, I've learned that I prefer process. That is, working with people week in and week out, um, as I did when I was a counselor, as I did in Life Path. I enjoy teaching very much, but it's more compelling and satisfying for me if it's over a period of time where I know my audience, as I did in Life Path. What surprised me about agreeing to speak at the gathering is that I almost drove myself and my husband crazy trying to figure out what to say until I asked myself, what do you want to say? What's on your heart? Maybe what's on your heart has been imprinted by your creator. Pay attention. So, instead of being the morning speaker, I will revert to a very old, comfortable spot of being a storyteller and simply tell you some of what I've learned in the now many years of living that I hope will be helpful to you. Some of you know I also authored the book that's back here that's the story of how Life Path came to be with all the correct details and of how, of how what Salem, the part Salem Alliance played, how the twists and turns of my life and listening to God's voice brought me to direct the ministry for 23 of the best years of my life. Some of what I say is taken from the book. It's my prayer that there will be something here this morning for you to carry away and for you to ponder. And just maybe it will be something that God's Spirit will use in the process of forming you to be what he's creating you to be in his world 
in his world that can be so very dark and is so in need of light. I don't want this morning to serve you spiritual fast food, but rather it's my goal that my words will nourish your soul. Now, because of my very strong bias of wanting to know my audience and wanting to be known by my audience, I'll start this morning by telling you a bit about my history and then go on to share some things about disappointment and despair that God has taught me throughout my life. My really quick current biography is that I have four adults who call me mom. And I have four adults to whom I answer to mother-in-law. And there are 11 wonderful people ranging in age from 3 to 28 that call me grandma. And one person who calls me honey and to whom I have been married since I was 21. And since I have the microphone, I will continue to take advantage of that state. And I'll brag on the guy that calls me honey and say he's the photographer uh, that a lot of his work hangs on the second and third floors of the commons and is throughout uh, the annex. And I like to put a little caveat on there, although I was Life Path Director, I had nothing to do with his work. <laughs> it really wasn't nepotism that ended up with that over there. <laughs> um, and his work also hangs in many offices and homes in the area. And lately, um, uh, the new uh, Boulder Creek Clinic on 12th features, I believe, over 30 of his pieces there. He and I have lived in Salem for 37 years. A year and a half ago, we did what we didn't realize was going to be as difficult as it was, and we moved from our big, beautiful home on six acres, and we did the proverbial downsizing. But I still have space to continue my ardent love of gardening. I love the whole thing. I even like pulling weeds. I know I'm weird. But I, I love planting seeds. I love getting my little greenhouse out and getting things going. I love seeing what's coming up, how it's doing, and what's eating it and what we're going to do about it. I love composting. I love the fact that the peels and the seeds and all the stuff that you just don't use to eat, at least in America we don't, goes in my little bucket and I put it outside in a pile and something amazing happens to the garbage. Absolutely amazing. I stick it in there and the only thing I ever do is occasionally turn it over with a big fork and lo and behold, it turns into the best soil for growing plants. I just think it's like magic. I just love it. If you don't compost, you could talk to me about that later and I'll tell you about that. <laughs> but they didn't ask me to talk about composting. <clears throat> but long before all of this happened, I was a child living just up the road in Portland. Up through second and third grade, I truly have only happy memories. Oh, I disobeyed and I got in trouble, and as I look back, the trouble I got in, I well deserved. But my mind as a child is filled with wonderful things, of annual trips to Montana, where my extended family lived. It was like going to Little House on the Prairie, 
my family lived in log cabins that they had built from logs on their, on their property. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have running water. It was awesome. Us city kids just loved going there. We just thought it was wonderful and it was a great heritage. Other great memories I have are of playing board games with my family. We didn't have cell phones, so we played board games. And yes, of listening, it was a long time ago when I was a kid, of listening Friday nights to the radio and eating popcorn as a family. We had frequent house guests, often missionaries and pastors, in our home. I was a girl who preferred sitting in the group with my dad and his men friends or his brothers, rather than with my mom in the kitchen preparing food and doing dishes. I liked listening to the stories my uncles told and the things my dad and they shared with each other. It's where I learned to tell stories. I loved laughing with them. I loved listening to them talk about the world and its problems and what they thought were the solutions. I'm sure some of you have seen the movie Wonder Woman. I loved the movie Wonder Woman. I have nothing in me, not even an inkling, that desires to be physically forceful uh, and masterfully and athletically wield a spear or an arrow. Nothing. But as I watched the young Wonder Woman as a child on the screen, and I can see it as I talk to you, much to my surprise, I could identify, I could almost feel myself as that child with her keen desire to get to do what she was watching, checking out what was going on, and so very eager to take on the world. I can still feel that urge. Let's get with it. As I got a little older, my dad would buy books and he and I would read them and talk them over. I felt so loved by my dad. I learned that he believed in me and that whatever I wanted to do with my life, he would do everything he could to make it happen. And he did. Like Wonder Woman, I simply had something in me that wanted to make a difference in this world. On the other hand, to my quiet, organized, neat, introverted mother and her consternation, I was always coming up with a project that I couldn't, I couldn't put away. At least I couldn't put it away neatly, and if I did put it away, when I'd pull it out, I couldn't find all the parts. My hair never did. My hair never, ever did what she wanted it to. <laughs> I can still feel her hand on my hair, trying to smooth out these red wires that she couldn't figure out where they came from. My sister and I could argue over virtually anything and everything and drove my mom nuts. But aside from these squalls, and skirmishes, life was good. And then, probably like many of you, I hit some very, very bumpy years in high school. High school was simply four hard years. Hard because I didn't feel I fit in, because I didn't. 
my family had very rigid religious beliefs. And so as they say, if it was fun, we didn't do it. <laughs> no lipstick, no dances, no earrings, no birthday parties on Sunday, and all parties were on Sunday. No softball in the street with the neighbor kids on Sunday, no playing cards, no movies, you get it. I was allowed to hand sew on Sunday. And thus, I learned the art of embroidering as a child. And today, instead of hating it, I still love it. But I didn't look like the other kids. I had this stuff on my head. And I had this stuff on my head when style said your hair should hang straight and flip out on the end. Try that in Portland. I would work, get it smooth, get it perfect, walk out the front door, the fuzz, pew. My clothes were hand-me-downs from a much larger aunt and a neighbor. I went to the high school in Portland that the professionals' kids went to. My peers were the children of doctors and lawyers and business people. My dad was a civil engineer with a very good salary. But both my parents had grown up in the deepest poverties of the 1930s depression in the great dust bowl of northeastern Montana. As my parents, they were generous and principled people who were grateful for their income and gave much of it away to people and causes they believed in. But those unforgiving prairies in which they had grown up had taught them that dollars were made not to be spent, but to be stretched. And they simply saw no sense in a closet full of clothes or fancy trips to a hair salon. How did I tackle what I experienced as problems? Well, for one thing, I learned to sew and to sew very well. Big names back when I was a high schooler were Lands and Pendleton, and I learned there were ways around disappointment. I didn't have to face it. I could fool people into thinking I had a brand label inside my clothes that matched theirs. Today, I know <laughs> that nobody else really cared what was sewn into the back of my shirt. It was really about me and a very distorted sense of worth and sense of belonging. But that's where I was at that time. But I learned to sew. The truth is, I really didn't buy any clothes at the store at all, including pajamas, coats, you name it, except jeans. I did buy jeans. But everything else I made until after we moved to Salem and my job and my children took more time and I just couldn't sew. I still love sewing, I just don't have time for all of it. I had learned in high school. I learned to work around disappointment. I learned to beat it at its own game. I was good at it. I didn't let things get me down. Years later, I earned the name Pollyanna from my husband. I was strong. I could make things happen. I could always see the positive. College was a new story. 
It was four magical years where I turned a massive corner and moved towards getting to be who I think God made me to be, adventurous, fun-loving, and a leader. I had so many, many wonderful experiences, including falling in love and getting married the summer after graduation. I learned that planning my life and then executing those plans was a good way to live. I figured I had the formula for living. Disappointments and despair were components in other people's lives. After college, my husband and I both taught public school in the Seattle area. And when we left the Edmonds Public Schools, we were shown a note in our files that said if we ever wanted to return to teach there, we were to be rehired without interviews. I left there thinking, if you work hard and you yourself, all will go well. You are the master of your fate. It seemed to me to be God's blessing on our lives, and maybe it was. But I had so much to learn. But for the time being, I had a working formula for a good life and what I've come to see as a very self-indulgent culture. It was time to get on with our lives and move where we wanted to live and raise a family. And in keeping with what I had learned worked in life, <laughs> we applied for jobs in beautiful Central Oregon. And we got them, of course. Our formula was working. Set a goal, do the work, and go for it. Back when I was a young woman, the basic formula was get your degree, get married, work for two years, and have a family. I didn't like the formula. I had an education, and I wanted to use it for more than two years. So I said in Wonder, Wonder Woman style, no, I'll teach for four or five years, and then have my family. So I taught, and my friends had babies. And then finally, it was my turn. But the family I had anticipated didn't show up on my timetable and could not be persuaded to get started. And so, as the monthly red flag waved at me and once again said, no baby on the way, I faced a hill I had never climbed. There was a goal I had no power to achieve. I cried a lot. I prayed. I swore off attending church on Mother's Day. I prayed and I begged. I avoided baby showers. I prayed and I pleaded. After waiting for over two years, my husband and I decided on the adoption option and did all the hoop jumping. I prayed and I hoped and we were approved. And with great excitement, we began to decorate a nursery. My husband came home one day from his summer job with the Forest Service and said that while walking a trail that day, he had seen a carved sign on a tree and it had, it had the name Scotty carved into it. And he said, I want our baby named Scott, so I think we've got a boy coming. I remember looking at him and saying, what are you, clairvoyant or something, what's the deal? But within days of him coming home with this strange story of wanting his child named what he had seen carved on a tree, 
we got a call from the adoption agency asking if we would consider taking an eight-month-old rather than a newborn. They had a boy, Scott Matthew. Would we go to Medford and at least meet the child? We went and we came home with our son, whom we renamed Christopher Scott. I didn't know it then. But I would need to remember back to the sign on the tree and the baby whose birth number, whose birth mother had named him Scott. And remember that just maybe those were God's fingerprints reminding me that his ways are not my ways, that his thoughts are higher than mine, and that he'd been thinking about me and Christopher Scott for a long time. And what he was bringing us to this world to do. 22 months later, Christopher Scott's sister would be born to us. It looked like we had climbed the hill and we would move on and live happily ever after. Oh, there would be rough spots, like discovering that our son, though very bright, had a serious auditory learning disability and ADD, and he didn't learn like other children did. But my ability to encounter a disappointment with my formula, to set a goal, do the work, and go for it would be pulled out over and over, and we'd make it. We moved to Salem when Christopher Scott was ready for high school and his sister was starting middle school, and our surprise and their surprise package little baby brother, who was three, came with us. Another sister would join our family seven years down the road. Yes, you can laugh. I'm a mother of four children, and not a single one of them is a product of my great formula for doing life. Set a goal, do the work, and go for it. Ironic, isn't it? I think the way in which my children join my life is just one of the ways in which God has shown me himself to be the sovereign God whose ways are not my ways and who thinks on a much different level than I do. When we moved, I had recently finished grad school and my counseling internship. With the move to Salem, my husband and I began our new private counseling practice and number one son began high school and number one daughter began middle school. My husband and I worked out our work schedule, so I only worked one night, Tuesday night. And on this particular Tuesday night that I want to tell you about this morning, after a 10-hour workday of listening to heartaches in my counseling office, I was tired. Looking forward to a snack and a hug from my husband, I headed home anticipating the quiet of my children in bed. I made the left turn onto our street towards our one-acre home, home site. It was the second property on the right. And as I turned, I saw the pulsating lights. Realizing the rotating blue light was flashing in the driveway of my home, my heart dropped into the front seat of the car. There was no mistaking it. Driving closer, I could see the empty police car parked in front of my garage. Edging my car in next to the light radiating throughout my neighborhood, my heart pounded. 
Somehow I walked to the front door and I opened it. And immediately to the right, going down the stairs, were two law officers walking towards our family room and our two bedrooms. I followed along, learning that my son and a friend were accused of stealing tools from his friend's father. Evidence proving this accusation to be true was soon, to my horror, located in his bedroom. I couldn't believe what was happening in my home. It wasn't a bad dream. I wouldn't wake up finding it was a nightmare that had come out of nowhere but was thankfully gone. It was real. The police were in my home and my son was in serious trouble. Several days later, I found myself in a county courtroom as my son stood before a judge, just like in a movie. Except it wasn't a movie. The judge spoke to my 16-year-old and he said, you will become a ward of this court. Oh, somebody thinks I need to blow my nose, so <laughs> I can take a hint. Sorry, guys. <laughs> and thank you to whoever was getting grossed out over whatever I was doing. <laughs> the judge said to my son, you will become a ward of this court and answerable to me. As you no doubt know, we've studied your home. It's what we do when young people get in trouble. Your home appears to be a place we like to put boys like you. This is a very unusual thing for me to do, but I've decided you will not be put into foster care, but return to the care of your parents. I hope you'll learn from this. I hope you will choose new friends because you need them. I hope I will never, ever see you in this courtroom again. Do you understand, son? He gave some detailed instructions and slammed down his gavel. We walked out of the courtroom. Walking into that room sometime earlier, I had been frightened, but it never even crossed my mind that my son might be taken from us and placed in foster care. But I understood now, and I could hardly believe what had happened. My son and his friend, with whom he had stolen the tools, went out with me to lunch. We had hamburgers and ice cream. It was my treat. We had something to talk over. We discussed the future and the needed changes. The talk went well. Both boys seemed to understand the gravity of the situation. My son seemed humble and broken. I dared to hope that God had answered my prayers those of myself and my husband and my parents and those of friends who cared and loved us. I dared to hope he was through with trouble. Driving home, I was certain of God's goodness. Later that evening, I crawled into bed and after praying prayers of thanksgiving, my husband and I rolled over to sleep more peacefully than we probably had in a couple of years. At two o'clock, in the morning, the phone, the real ones, you know, not our cell phones, but the kind that have them, <laughs> rang on my bedstand. I don't know if it rang, it seemed to me like it screamed. Why do you get a call at two o'clock in the morning? Reaching for the phone by my bedside, I suspiciously said, hello? 
Hello, may I speak with Mr. and Mrs. Wolf? Assuring the voice of who I was, I heard Mrs. Wolf. This is the Salem place. My heart fell into my stomach just as it had when I saw those rotating blue lights not all that long ago in my driveway. Mrs. Wolf, do you know where your 16-year-old is this evening? My mind raced. What's going on? And I answered, yeah, he's in his bed. Would you go and check? We'll hold the line. Laying down the receiver and with my heart now in my throat, I walked downstairs to his bedroom feeling like a victim caught on that old TV show, Candid Camera. Of course, the bed was empty and the window in his ground floor bedroom was open. Somehow, I got back to the phone to admit what the officer already knew. My son wasn't where he belonged. The officer gave me instructions as to where to find the juvenile delinquent hall where I was to pick him up. I told the officer I would come immediately. I told myself I could go and let my husband stay home with the other sleeping children. I was brave. I was strong. I had a formula. At least I thought I did. I located JDH, parked my car, went in a place I had never even been near, and showed my identification. Escorted to his room, I stood before a four-inch circular cutout in the door through which I was allowed to speak to my son. As I stand here this morning, I can still see his deer-in-the-headlight eyes looking out at me. I still don't know what the right thing to say is, nor do I have any idea what I said to him. He was brought out to me by an officer holding his arm, just like in the movies, only it wasn't a movie. He failed to meet my eyes. He failed to look nonchalant and confident. His feet were shoeless. He was a scared little boy in a young man's body. The officer held on to his arm, walking him to the front of the building. Following them to the front desk, I signed papers agreeing to appear with him at a given court date. His shoes were handed to him. He put them on and we walked silently to the car. We drove home silently. Maybe we said a few words, I don't remember. I do remember that I had no idea what to say or do. As we got in the house, I said to him, I want to talk in the morning. I don't think now is a good time to talk. My heart was somewhere in my body, but it weighed a thousand pounds. He went to his bedroom and fell sound asleep. Walking to our living room, I fell into a chair and sobbed. My heart not only weighed a thousand pounds, but it was scattered someplace in my chest. It had broken into tiny little pieces. This wasn't disappointment. This was utter despair. My husband and I had known for a couple years that storm clouds had been gathering over our lives. 
I had hoped and prayed they would blow on over. How do you know if clouds will threaten but do precious little damage or if they're the first wave of a hundred year storm? I didn't know. But what I did know was that a hurricane was blowing our lives to smithereens. And my formula for dealing with tough spots, to set a goal, to work hard and to go for it, was totally inadequate. Sure, a formula like that works in some places and it's a good thing to have. It's a good tool. But when your life is unmanageable and out of control, it's pretty useless. Not only was my go-to formula inadequate, but I had nothing left from which to draw. My life was out of control and unmanageable. I sobbed some more. Going to bed would be absolutely useless. Sitting in a favorite chair, I reached for my Bible. <laughs> what else do you do at four o'clock in the morning with the roof blown off your life? I turned to the psalm I would have read the next morning if it had been morning. And it began, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? I read and reread and reread those lines. The writer of those lines reacted to trouble very differently than I was. He was not afraid. With tears running down my face, I laid my head back in that chair. Although it's not a pattern of mine, tonight I was terrified. What lay ahead of us for me, for our family, for the kids, for my son, for my husband and I? What caused the writer to not be afraid? The answer was in front of me in clear words. The light, the salvation, the stronghold of the writer's life was the Lord. In the early hours of that most awful and sleepless night, with a clarity I didn't want at all, but I desperately needed, I saw that my dreams for my family had been dashed on sharp rocks. I saw that my children were not only a priority in my life, but they had become the center when they did well, I did well. When they did poorly, I did poorly. And tonight, the unthinkable had happened. My son was a juvenile delinquent. My life fell completely apart. I had failed at one of the most important goals in my life, parenting well. When my eyes could focus, I went on to read. And the scripture said, when evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, who I definitely felt like something was eating me alive, and then when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. I saw no evidence of any enemy stumbling or falling. And then it said, though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. And then I read, the war break out against me, I will still be confident. I could identify with the fierceness of what was going on, but not with the lack of fear. But that last 
phrase intrigued me. The war break out against me. I started to get the message, maybe. Maybe war had been declared. I had a new understanding of words that the Apostle Paul wrote when he said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of darkness. Almost panicked, I realized if that was what was going on, I simply had to have a different strategy than setting goals, working hard, and going for it. I looked back at the words I had read, and the writer clearly says, with total confidence, my heart will not fear. And in the face of mounting issues, he repeats, even then will I be confident. How do you do it? I wasn't even close to confidence. I looked at the text and I saw the answer. It was simple, though not, not easy. The writer said God was the center of his life. The Lord was the light and the salvation and the stronghold of his life. The author had nothing to fear. God never changes. My children were the center of my life, and children change daily, if not hourly. I had everything to be afraid of. I felt like that psalm had been written for me and hidden away for a few thousand years, and I had just found this nugget. I truly had no idea how to get my hands around that kind of fearlessness, but I saw was where I needed to get. And so I read on. One thing have I desired of the Lord. This is what I seek. Oh, I was so excited. I mean, this psalm had been written for me way back there. And now the author, God had him write, one thing have I desired. That was just like me. I understood the writer because I only wanted one thing too. When life gets tough, you got to prioritize. And tonight, I could get my priority, priorities in line. I wanted my son's life rearranged. Only that's all, all I needed was just that. I wanted him to someday be a God-honoring family man. I wanted him to be a good student and a responsible young man. I wanted the American dream for my boy. Is that too much to ask? Maybe this psalm would tell me how to get the one thing I wanted, and so I read on. In the next line, the psalmist writes what one thing he wanted. I eagerly read, and this is what he wrote. He wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. What? What was that? I caught my breath. Why would he write if you were down to just one thing and your life is desperate, why would you want to sit in a church the rest of your life? Honestly, I was mad. I was really mad. I felt betrayed. I loved those first four verses. They pulled me in and pointed me to a direction that I thought was good. Those had been written for me, they were there, but the writer screwed it up in that verse. It looked like 
It looked like poetic religious drivel to me. It was cliched. It no longer felt authentic or inspirational. I had dared to hope that my anxiety would be solved in the psalmist's next couplets. I was hoping for answers that worked. I wanted the exact words that would salve and mend my broken heart. With anger oozing out of my pores, I rationalized that my own aching heart must have warped my initial reading of that song. What was I thinking? Was it that emotional go-for-it part of me that drove my mom crazy, getting me in trouble here as an adult? After I don't know how much time, I again reached for my Bible. Maybe I thought it would improve. As I told you earlier, my husband says I'm a Pollyanna, the eternal optimist. Cautiously, I looked at the words again, in which the author explains his one prioritized choice that precipitated my rant. And he wrote, for in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. I had been too quick with my ranting rage. I was embarrassed. I had jumped too soon. I read it over and I got it. I understood that the psalmist wrote confidently and without fear because he knew that in life there was only one thing he absolutely had to go for. Convinced that trouble and disappointment and despair come sooner or later to all of us in this world. The psalmist knew there was one thing that was essential. He knew he needed power greater than himself. He knew he would need a refuge from the storms of life. He knew he needed God. And he knew he needed to know God intimately. I needed to make the same prioritized choice. Reading through the remainder of the psalm, I loved it. I was humbled. The words had been written for me. I hadn't warped the text. I just got off the track a bit with my Wonder Woman spears and swords. I reached the closing lines and they read, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I read this to mean that in spite of all the warring and the fighting, there would be goodness in life. I, could, I couldn't determine what that might look like, but it would be recognizably good. I could live with that. And then came the last verse. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. It was a psalm written for me. I had the message. Wait. The timetable was not mine to write. I would need to wait. Sapped of strength and with courage long gone, I thought I could let my heart be strong and take courage if it was given to me by God. That night, 
now many years ago. That most horrendous of nights, my life made a turn. Most things in my life take a while. But that night, something happened. Oh, I still had much to learn, but my life changed. I had prayed as a six-year-old and asked Jesus to live in my life. I had long believed he had died for my sins and that he was the son of God. I had known for years that I was part of God's eternal family. But that night, something new happened. Compelled by the horrendous circumstances of my life, I had honestly looked at my reactions to the events of life. I saw my own tendency to try to control it all, to try to keep it manageable and in order. Franciscan priest Richard Rohr says, Don't imagine anybody noticed, but I have a pendant that some of you may have, if you saw, you wonder, what has she got that on for? I have a pendant that says, lucky. Listen to Richard Rohr's words. If you are lucky enough, God will lead you to a situation you cannot control, you cannot fix and you cannot even understand. At that point, true spirituality begins. Up to that point, all else is preparation. That was my lucky night. Taking strength and courage from God, I came to know peace. Yes, I would lose it on occasion, but I could get it back because I now had the secret of throwing the garbage of my life into the hands of an expert composter, my heavenly father. Did I like the journey I was on? No, I didn't. It was incredibly difficult. What I didn't know at the time, thank God, was that there would be far more pain. Visiting your son in another jail on Mother's Day was one of the hardest, was one of the pieces of that journey. The storms would be beyond anything I ever imagined. But some incredible good has grown from the compost of that journey. The compost has grown plants I didn't even know about. It has been the catalyst for a journey of spiritual growth and discipline. Without this specific journey into the world of addiction, I would never, never have had the opportunity to work with Life Path and Steps. Without this journey, I wonder if I would have learned to know myself and to know God. Don't get me wrong, I'm no hero or spiritual giant. I'm simply not courageous enough to say, if I had the choice, I'd do it all again in a heartbeat. To be honest with you, I might have settled for bragging rights to beautiful, well-educated, professional children. My loving Heavenly Father has given me the strength and the courage to walk another path that's made me a different person. And I 
I'm forever grateful. When I lose my peace, it's because I forget that this is God's world, not mine. He is sovereign. He is not the leader of a democracy. He is sovereign. And only he belongs at the center of my life. So I need to confess where I am and once again let go of clutching so tightly to the peels and the seeds and the garbage and place it in the hands of my loving Heavenly Father who knows what to do because he is the master composter. He is a father who understands that he made me from the dust of this earth and he breathed his life into me. He is the father who says, when I'm out there trying to run it by myself, oh, there goes the dust again. That's what dust does when it gets away from its source of power. He is the father who understands when we yell and scream and tell him, as Jeremiah did in his journal that we call Lamentations. It's crazy to me that this book didn't get lost someplace in the Middle East. That we see that this is how I can talk to God. Oh, he has walled me in so I cannot escape. He's weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my way with blocks of stone. He's made my paths crooked, like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding. God has dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and he made me the target for his arrows. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace and I have forgotten what prosperity is. Yes. God wants me to be honest. He wants to hear my heart. And he is the father then that after my ranting rage and after I quiet myself, he is the father who waits for me to quiet down and remember as Jeremiah did. Oh, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. Oh, I well remember them. And my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions. Never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. And as I leave you this morning, I want to leave you with some words that I believe are some of the most beautiful words in all of the scriptures. Words spoken by an obscure prophet, Habakkuk, who like Jeremiah, not only heard words from God to give to his people, that they wouldn't listen to. <clears throat> but he was a prophet who had to live through 
the consequences of his people not listening. Words that if they would have listened, they wouldn't have gone into captivity. They wouldn't have been enslaved. These words that Habakkuk wrote are words from a man who didn't just believe God, but he knew him. He spent time with him. He knew how to recognize the voice of God, and he completely rested his life in God's hands. Oh, he trembled and he shook with the reality he had to live through. And yet he moved beyond the power of disappointment, discouragement, and despair to control his life. Listen to his words. I heard and my heart pounded. Sounds like me in the courtroom. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the height. I pray that you too may allow God to take you on a journey where he gives you feet like a deer and you can go on the heights.